Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. I'm honored to be speaking to the man in front of me. He is an immigration advisor, entrepreneur, businessman. He's actually a jack of all trades, really. <laughs> Arun Jacob, how are you doing? Very well, Rhys. Thanks for having me here today. No worries. I'm always interested in getting more knowledge in my, in my life, in my brain. <laughs> so tell me how you decided to become an immigration advisor. Uh, it's an interesting story, actually. I called myself the reluctant immigration advisor. Uh, I had nothing to do with immigration, to be honest. Uh, right. And I come from a background of uh, working in the office automation industry. Mm -hmm. I worked for a long time with Xerox and Canon and those kinds of companies. I also worked with a very, very large telecommunications firm uh, back in India. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when I went overseas for the first time in 1999 to the U.S., uh, is when I realized what a big world was outside my little well called India. Uh, so that's when I come, my eyes kind of, you know, opened up to the fact that there is a much wider stage for people to play on. Uh, and then one thing led to another after the US, I went and worked in the UK for a bit. And then I came to New Zealand in 2001. Uh, I call it 2001 BC, uh, because that was before children. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> so it was just me and my wife who came here and I absolutely fell in love with New Zealand from day one. So it wasn't like the first time that I went overseas. Uh, like I told you, I had already been to uh, US and uh, UK, worked there, lived there. Uh, but some, there was something very fascinating about New Zealand when I came here. I just felt like I belonged. It was almost a very spiritual sort of experience. And back in the early 2000s, uh, you know, people from India, when they were thinking of migrating, they could only look at the US and UK. And I would you know, look all around me yeah. at this beautiful country that I got myself into and say, why aren't those jokers back in India looking at other new destinations like New Zealand? And those days, our migration policy was not very aggressive. Uh, we were kind of more in the pull mode rather than the push mode uh, as a nation uh, here in New Zealand. So I said, okay, here's an opportunity to promote this fantastic destination to good, high-quality people back home in India. And so it was, I'd say, I think it's, it's a combination of my love for New Zealand and to make it a better country uh, by attracting the best talent, plus the inherent salesman in me of uh, realizing there's a great destination that can be uh, projected to the right people as well. And that's how my whole uh, uh, trust with immigration started. Right. So... Because you've been to the UK, you've been to America. So what was it specifically about New Zealand? I think what I liked was the spaces, the wide open spaces to begin with. And I also liked the uh, the bicultural platform on which uh, our, our country has been built. Uh, I felt there was an ease in the way people were living. You just felt it in your bones that they were a bit more relaxed and chilled out and you know, and it just suited me very well because, you know, <laughs> I might come across as the aggressive entrepreneur, but deep inside, I'm the guy who'd rather smell the roses and enjoy a cup of coffee, uh, yeah. you know, and take my time to take it all in. And I think we in New Zealand have understood that pace of life. That's not always the right race. And I think that we, we found the right work-life balance. Because, mm. say, in places <clears throat> like India and China, it can yeah. be quite, quite cutthroat, right? Because, very. obviously, you've got a lot of people there all competing for the same jobs. Very. Yeah. So was it easy for you to transition when you first came here? I'd say yes. Uh, I, I think so. I think uh, that was probably... So there were a lot of 
invisible things that were, you know, affecting me in a positive way mm. when I moved to New Zealand. And one of them could be that sheer space around you of knowing that there aren't 200,000 people applying for that one single job, you know, Good point. sort of thing, you know. So, uh, and like you said, yeah, you used the word cutthroat. Yeah, absolutely. Extraordinarily aggressive uh, environments back in India. You know, you're kind of fighting your way ahead for pretty much everything, including standing in line to get a bottle of milk, you know, sort of thing. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I just felt a massive sense of ease. And I just felt a massive sense of that I this was the place I belonged. Uh, and that's where it all started for me. Mm. So when did you decide to found AJV? Great. So when I came here, uh, another interesting story, why I how I ended up in Hamilton is that, so I was like most migrants of the day. Uh, I was in Auckland as well. Of course. Uh, of course, yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, I, we were there and my, we realized uh, my wife was pregnant uh, and she had the most terrible morning sickness uh, any lady could ever endure. Uh, and there was something in the house we were staying. We were actually staying with a family known to us uh, that just wouldn't agree with her and would step in and she would start throwing up. So it reached a point where she actually got hospitalized for a few days and we had to leave that home and find another place to go to. And fortunately, I had a friend here in Hamilton. So I called him up and said, hi, look, we're looking at a place to stay for a few days. Is it all right if we come to your place? So he said, yes. And that friend also kindly then put me in touch with somebody who was looking for a marketing manager. And that's how I found my first job here in Hamilton. And then, of course, a few months later, our first child was born in Hamilton. And so we formed that emotional connect with Hamilton as well. And uh, yeah, that, that that's how we uh, ended up uh, here in Hamilton. Mm -hmm. Yes. Makes sense. Yeah. So what are some of the common questions that you get asked in regards from people wanting to migrate here? Uh, to well, I think some of the common questions about, uh, are you talking about just in New Zealand in, gen uh, in particular or generally about migration? Uh, well, both really. Okay. Why don't we start with New Zealand and then from a global scale okay. as well? Yeah, well, uh, I think there is still a little bit of a known factor around New Zealand. Uh, I think to a lot of people uh, from around the world who want to migrate to New Zealand, we are still a bit of an unknown quantity, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Mm. Uh, good in the sense, you know, that we continue to live in paradise. Uh, it's, we're not getting, you know, uh, beaten down at the borders and, you know, hordes of people wanting to rush in. And I think we also have a fantastic uh, immigration program uh, devised by the government. Uh, I think it's very effective. Uh, it might have its flaws, but I think overall it's a very, very good program. So the most common questions people ask about New Zealand is, is are there jobs in New Zealand? Uh, you know, uh, isn't it really small? Uh, because we are stuck next to this big, massive continent slash country called Australia. You know, the thing that we're just a very tiny little piece of uh, land stuck in the uh, in the South Pacific, without realizing we are as big as England or sorry UK or Japan or uh, the state of California. Yeah, geographically we are as big as that. So I think there's still a lot of. It's a lack of understanding about New Zealand. So sometimes, you know, questions can also be quite silly, like, uh, so do you have an earthquake every day, sort of? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> really? Some of them can be a bit silly. 
But I think with the advent of the internet, because remember, I'm talking about the times when I started, which was 2001 till now. I think there's also been a very, very rapid increase in the way the internet has penetrated and there's more information out there. And because of which I think there's a bit more understanding about us in New Zealand. But yeah, by and large, the bigger question is, will I be, will I be able to find a job? Uh, what is the living expenses? Is there racism in New Zealand? Will I be accepted? You know, all the, you know, normal, I call them the cliched set of questions. Ah, oh, right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. was there, because you started in about 2001, that's around about the time Lord of the Rings became yeah. big and put New Zealand on the international stage. Yeah, that's right. Did that, in terms of the landscapes, for example, did that shape a lot of the interest in New Zealand all of a sudden, or was it still similar to before in terms of just the general overview of the country in terms of work, uh, livelihood, or did it become a bit more about landscapes and how green it is? Because you know how that's the kind of marketing ploy that New Zealand tourism does now. And it's it's largely, like say in America, they, they think of New Zealand as Lord of the Rings, right? Is there a particular thing that say indians or chinese they think of when they think of new zealand i think so i think uh, a lot of the rings was uh uh quite an important uh, significant part of the way our migration shaped up later right. post release of the movie and i think people kind of began to realize that here's this beautiful piece of land and i think yeah the first thing that did strike them was the landscapes and the beauty of the country and uh, those sorts of things. Interestingly enough, around the same time, there was also a movie made here in New Zealand, but it was a Bollywood movie uh, from India, uh, and uh, it was called Kahona Pyarhe. Was it shot in the Coromandel? No, it was actually shot in the South Island, mostly. Um, and there's some beautiful shots of like uh, Tekapo and you know uh, or, or Queenstown and those kinds of places that had a massive effect on the Indian market, for instance. I, I can't speak for Chinese markets, but uh, in India, that movie really established New Zealand as a destination to the extent that the lead actor of that movie was, you know personally invited for a one-on-one meeting with Helen Clark when she was prime minister and she was on state visit to India and she presented them with a, a Taunga from New Zealand and mm. it was sort of, uh, yeah, it, it, that's the way it happened. So I'd say, yeah, I think audiovisual medium has been a, a massive, uh, uh, you know, game changer for us as a destination, both from tourism and migration and international education and, you know, in whichever form migrants were coming to New Zealand. Mm. So what's, say, the difference between migrating to New Zealand or the UK or America, for example? What are the main differences? How much more difficult is it? I mean, I suppose it changes all the time, right? Because Mm. it's it's a difficult one to answer. But is there there significantly uh, more of a a problem to migrate to some of those other places than New Zealand? Uh, by and large, the underlying principle of migration is the same race, whether we, you know, it's New Zealand or UK or America or, you know, whichever country you're looking at. And the underlying principle, and I think which a lot of people do not, you know, fathom or understand is that it's not just a one-way street where migrants are wanting to come into a particular country. Mm. It's actually a two-way street. Every country actually has got resource crunch. Every country has got something called a skills shortage. Mm. So it is actually a two-way street, and that's something that I say out loud and clear to my clients, telling them, hey, look, you're actually uh, betting on the front foot and not on the back foot. Mm. 
It's not just your desire to be in a particular country, but it's also that country's desire to attract you into their, into their particular domain. I personally feel that I'm actually uh, an unpaid salesperson for the government of New Zealand. Well, because, maybe they should pay you. Yeah, maybe they should. <laughs> uh, because uh, I am competing for their talent uh, in the face of competition from UK, Canada, US, Australia, what have you. So there is a massive skills shortage around the world. And again, you know, without getting too deep into the migration subject, if you, you know, understand largely because most of the populations in these countries are, you know, uh, coming down uh, and or they're aging. Uh, in New Zealand, for instance, we have an interesting statistic where uh, most of our population is in the really young age or in the really old age. And that chunk right in the middle, which is where you're working for workforce is, which is getting out there doing work like yourself, you know, earning money and paying taxes has diminished. How do we fill that to keep our economy going? You have to import that workforce. So it is a two-way street. So when you look at it that way, pretty much all countries have a similar sort of uh, requirement and the pull and push factor. But the skill shortage might differ from country to country. For instance, you know, America might be needing more engineers. Uh, UK might be needing more doctors. Uh, New Zealand may be requiring more information technology professionals, you know, that sort of thing. So. The processes are pretty similar to each country. Again, they're not, uh, you know, very, very different. So I'd say for a migrant, it's important to check to see where their skills will be most valued. Uh, and I think, and also otherwise, as OECD nations, most of them also have similar standards of life as well. So mm. it, it's not such a big decision, really. Yeah, but does, so when a migrant contacts you, mm. do they have an idea of, uh, what country they want to go to in mind or do you kind of help them with that so there are two kinds of migrants there is the one who is well researched uh, yep. done their research and are very clear because you know we uh, are now a multi-destination organization as a company uh, earlier of course we started uh, we, we used to promote only new zealand but now we promote canada australia and a few other uh, english-speaking countries as well uh, some of them come very well researched and are very clear in their thoughts and say hi hey, look i want to go only to australia and I'm quite clearly wanting to go only as an entrepreneur. Uh, so they not only know the destination, but are also very clear about the pathway they want to take. Mm. But then there are some who just come and say, you know what, just send me to a good country uh, sort of thing. And with them, it actually becomes a bit more difficult because we are now trying to match their skills to a destination country. Right. Yeah. Is there any unrealistic expectations some migrants have, though? when they want to move here? Uh, some of them, uh, I think the unrealistic expectations is a lack of understanding of their own abilities sometimes. Uh, some of them, unfortunately, can't speak very good English. Uh, and, you know, that in itself is a big barrier for to be successful in a country uh, where the you know majority of the population would speak in English, of course, uh, or they transact their business, everyday life in English. So some of them do come with uh, unrealistic expectations uh, expectations about their own abilities. Uh, some of them tend to think that if I have money, every problem can be solved. <laughs> uh, definitely not true. Yeah, definitely not true. Yeah, you're right about that, Reese. And uh, so, yeah. But the other unrealistic expectations, I think some of them walk in and expect to find a job in the first one week. Um, uh, they haven't acclimatized to the new environment. You know, they haven't done anything. 
so some of the unrealistic expectations are around mostly the jobs uh, of, you know, how, how come I didn't find a job in the first week or the first month uh, sort of thing. While it takes even a, in a, 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 the average Kiwi graduate uh, youngster from out of college uh, would probably also take a few months to actually uh, get out there and find a job that really matches their skills. Yeah, yeah. Because it'd be a number of uh, people that migrate here that might have to say a particular company might sponsor them. Yeah. But that's not actually the field they want to work in. Yeah. That's kind of a stepping stone. Yeah. Are they aware of this? Yes, they are aware of it. And uh, yeah, like I said, uh, they are sometimes, you know, trying to cut corners, unfortunately. So whilst they might have been trained all their life as an engineer, and they really should be taking a bit more time to get into the engineering kind of a role because that is where their real skill is. And that's what New Zealand needs as a skill from them. But if, let's say, somebody, like you said, somebody offers them a job as a, a manager of a, of a small retail store somewhere, they quickly jump into it because thinking, oh, that job is now going to help me to get my residency faster. So they do tend to take those shortcuts sometimes, but it can come back to bite them sometimes. Yeah, because this is a problem the world over, particularly yeah. in Western countries where an immigrant comes comes over and then they're exploited while they're here because what they're sold is not exactly the reality. I always say if it's too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what would be your advice to people that might be in that position right now? I think... Uh... One of the most important factors that uh, most migrants do not consider is the kind of advisor they're going to. Uh, and, right. uh, like, and you know, uh, yeah, and it's like the kind. It's like you know, let's say I've uh, I've had a problem with the law and I need to find a lawyer. Let's say I I've been caught drink driving, you know, and I need to go to a lawyer. It's important for me as the person defending myself, uh, you know, in a court of law, to make sure. I research that lawyer I'm going to well. Number one, is he, is he or she an expert in drink driving cases? Number two, what has been their track record? Mm. Are they maintaining their license? Is there any adverse feedback about them in this agent time? And the problem is that as a lot of these migrants are so desperate to go overseas, they'll go to the first guy available and more than likely in their own city, back in their home countries, not in New Zealand. And that is the problem because those guys sitting there and dishing out advice about New Zealand or Canada or Australia have never set foot themselves in any of these countries. Mm. Yeah. And that is the problem. So my advice to migrants would be, choose if you're wanting to go to uh, Sweden for whatever reason, try and find somebody who specializes in Sweden. Mm. Try and find somebody ideally uh, who lives in Sweden. And this age and time, distance is not a problem, especially post-COVID, we are all interacting online, sending documents and transacting business. Because a lot of migrants do not realize that the real drama starts after the land in the destination country. And that is where they really need the advisor. Mm. Mm. And that is where a lot of them goof up. I get hundreds of calls here on a weekly basis here in New Zealand where they say, hi, look, uh, I'm here and there's nobody to uh, support me. Can you do something for me? I'd say, who's the, uh, and I say, who's the company that sent you here? And they say, no, ABC, XYZ, whoever. And I say, don't I have a branch in New Zealand? They say, no. So what? Yeah. yeah. Now you see the problem? Yeah, yeah. You see the problem? Yeah. It's like somebody sold you a car 
but there's no workshop to get that car serviced <laughs> in your city. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Mm. So, in terms of being an entrepreneur, what are some of the biggest things people need to be aware of when wanting to be an entrepreneur, or biggest mistakes I suppose people make? The three things I think uh, that are very important for any entrepreneur is, is persistence, patience, and courage. Uh, I'd call these three probably from my own experience because I'm a first-generation entrepreneur in my family. Nobody before me ever got into business in my family. Everybody was happy doing the their jobs, working for somebody else. So I was the first guy to step out and do it. I probably liked a little bit uh, in the sort of mentoring that can occur if you're born into a business family mm. because from a very young age you begin to absorb them consciously or subconsciously and you know you're like I think my kids hear me all the time on the phone discussing various things or when I pick them up from school and I'm driving them back home they I'm on the you know the uh, on the uh, speakerphone uh, speaking to somebody or the other and so I think I like from a mentoring and I had to learn it myself uh, along the way but more than anything else I think I am where I am it's been uh, almost 20 years I've been in business now uh, I, it's been a fantastic journey for me and I just feel so fulfilled as an individual and as an entrepreneur. And the greatest joy is in creating employment for other people and providing that leadership to them and providing that vision to the other people in your team. My team is about 52 people, by the way, uh, oh, all, wow. <laughs> all across the world. So we are based here and we are a very proudly uh, New Zealand owned and operated company. Uh, I'm a Kiwi, by the way. You know, I've been here long enough to Good man. to get yeah uh, to get my black passport and you know and whip it out rather proudly at the different border crossings. Uh, so, 52 of us uh, working in different parts of the world: Malaysia, India, uh, Canada, US. So we are pretty much all over the place. Uh, but for COVID, we probably would have been 200 people across all around the world. Um, COVID taught me courage is very important not to back off, uh, to, to stare that challenge in the eye and stand your ground. Uh, so yeah, I'd say patience, persistence, uh, courage, a positive attitude towards life, mm. knowing that every down will have an up. Uh, or to quote uh, uh, that beautiful lyrics from Dire Straits, uh, there will be sunshine after rain. There will be laughter after pain, you know. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people, particularly young people, have uh, a fear of failure. Yeah. You agree? Yes, I completely agree with that. So how do you kind of rewire their brain to have more courage, to be fearless, I suppose, when it, when it comes to business? I mean, COVID has shown us that anything can change. The most unexpected thing yeah. can happen here. Yeah. Yeah. How do youngsters learn uh, to face adversity and still keep going forward with courage? I'd say look out for mentors. Mm. Okay, and it doesn't necessarily always to be a physical person you're interacting with. There are so many good examples of people who have moved ahead in the face of adversity. So many, so many people. Some of my heroes, for instance, are people I never met, but they are inside my head. Mm all the time talking to me. Either I watched a movie about the person or I read a book about the person or watched a doco on the person on YouTube or what have you. For instance, my personal uh, the hero is Ray Kroc. Would you know who Ray Kroc is? The name rings a bell. The name rings a bell, Kroc with a K. Uh, and 
I am 52, so was he when, you know, at 52, he was just your typical average sales guy. Right. Okay, and at 52, but then he stumbled upon a chance and he went for it. He absolutely went for it. And that's the reason we have McDonald's today. That's who it is. That's yes, who it is. Yes. I was thinking the name rings a bell, but why, why is yes, it eluding me? Yes, that great uh, uh, movie called The Founder, yeah, uh, which was brilliant. See, I never met Ray Kroc in my life. But when I saw that movie, it inspired me in an entirely different way. Because, you know, as I was getting older, I was coming up to 50. I thought, man, you're getting old. Would you have the energy? <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. The thoughts to cross, you know. Uh, maybe you should do another podcast on the challenges faced by middle-aged men. That's a whole new story altogether. Oh, I bet. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, where do I draw inspiration from? So I was similar to the young person who was losing confidence or, you know, I was also a middle-aged guy on the verge of losing my confidence. And then I stumbled upon this movie called The Founder and I watched it and it absolutely rejuvenated me. Oh, I loved that film. Yes. So, yeah. I... And that's where I derived that courage, that ability. If Ray Kroc could do it at 52 with little or no background and create something so that's so gigantic and enormous around the world, it apparently feeds 20% of the population on a daily basis around mm. the world. There's your inspiration right there. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's one thing I really respect about yourself is – you always seem happy. You always seem like you're in a good mood. I mean, I imagine with everything that happened with COVID, you would have had to pivot quite a bit and switch tact. Um, was that difficult for yourself? Oh, extremely. There were some very, very dark days. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Adversity is going to hit you in the face. Yeah. Every once in a while. If it's not COVID, it might be a health issue. Uh, it might be something else or the other. Uh so I think what we need to understand is that life is always going to be a series of challenges with those phases of happiness in between those two milestones. Mm. It is knowing that there's going to be another one that's going to come up in the next kilometer or so and enjoying the ride in between those two milestones and yet be prepped for whatever challenge comes your way. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you do that though? How do you stay in that right mind frame day to day? Ah, good question. I again, like I said, I draw inspiration from things and people who I've never met. And one of the most amazing things that inspired me in my personal way of living and my attitude towards life uh, is a picture that is uh, I and I'd like our viewers and our listeners to google it. It's called the pale blue dot. Uh, the pale blue, blue dot. dot. Yeah. So uh, I was I was absolutely astounded, blown away when I saw it for the first time. Uh, it looks like you know the background here in the studio, and there's just this little tiny dot somewhere there. Uh, it it looks like a very grainy, blurred image of 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 nothing really. Right. And then there's this little brightish blue dot in the middle of it, and uh, it was actually a pic. It was a real picture of of planet Earth taken by the Voyager 2 spacecraft when it was about to leave the solar system. Oh. Uh, and, you know, Carl Sagan, the famous astronomer, requested NASA to turn it around one last time before it left the solar system and take a picture of the Earth. So they did, they did it on his request. And that's now become uh, the very famous pale blue dot picture. Uh, and it, it astounded me to realize how small we are in the scheme of things. Uh, so... So every time I'm faced with a challenge, and that's my screen, that's my background screen on my laptop, by the way. 
Ah, oh, okay. So you're constantly reminded I'm of constantly it. I'm constantly check looking at that. And whenever I'm faced with a challenge and I see this picture, I take I don't take the view of Arun Jacob and Hamilton trying to deal with that problem. I take the I call it the Voyager view. I take a Voyager's view. Hmm. And and I look at that pale blue run and say, I can't see COVID on that dot. Yeah. I can't see a problem with my uh, with my GST on that dot. I suppose it's a perspective thing, yes, isn't it? Yes, exactly. That's, that's the word. So I chose that perspective to to sort of catch my breath and then come back closer and deal with the problem. Hmm. So are you still trying to help people migrate to various countries even though we're going through COVID? Yes, there, has, there have been a few countries that are beginning to open up. Canada has actively uh, kept its borders open for international students. Uh, I think we're taking a, a, a bit more of a cautious approach here in New Zealand. But I appreciate, you know, like I said, uh, there's a Kiwi in me and then there's a businessman in me. Uh, so I appreciate what, uh, as a Kiwi, uh, the fact that the government is keeping us safe mm. and stuff like that. But yeah, there are some countries that are open still. Uh, yeah. And so there is a little bit of movement, not as much as it was before. Uh, but uh, there is a lot of pent-up demand. So once... Uh, we, uh, you know, vaccinations roll out globally and there is more normalcy in the way people are traveling. There's a lot of pent up demand. So how do you balance between the businessman in you and the Kiwi in you? Because obviously those yeah, two those it, two uh, parts won't necessarily align. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. That's where I think, uh, Reese, it's also important that we prioritize things in our life. Mm. We absolutely need to prioritize uh, things in our life. So what's more important to me right now? To see my family being safe and secure and just going on uh, with life on an everyday basis or or the fact that my growth has stopped because of COVID for two years. Mm. So I choose to prioritize the happiness of my family over the growth of my uh, company. And so again, you know, it's a question of perspective. So I'm happy. I'm happy to uh, to see that we are all in a safe environment. For us, life is, uh, you know, uh, as usual. You invited me to your studio. I'm here. How many other countries can boast of doing something like this, you know, in the environment? So I think it's also being grateful, you know, about of 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 thank, being thankful of the things that are already there as a blessing, rather than imagined future glory and fortunes and that sort of thing. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. But I, I imagine as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, yeah. you're always thinking ahead, yes, right? Yes. Of the next thing. Yes. Yeah. How do you do that currently when we live in an environment where there's so much uncertainty? Yeah. By tracking closely the different activities that are being done globally to tackle COVID, for instance. Yeah. So I am an ardent follower of various news channels and papers, and I have a Google alert, anything to do with vaccinations and migration. So as you know, you can put those uh, you know, keywords of alerts and anything that comes in. So I'm constant. I think the uh, only way to battle a situation like this is to keep gaining more and more information. And when you get that information, you feel a bit more comfortable inside your head. So I know, for instance, that we've just started our first round of vaccinations here in, in New Zealand. Uh, and, you know, I keep, uh, yesterday I was watching uh, BBC uh, before I went to sleep and th there was some discussion around vaccinations rolled out. So that's the only way an entrepreneur can survive at this stage is to be, stay hopeful, keep track of uh, the information flow and know for sure that if I can see this year through and stay afloat, we will bounce back very, very strongly. 
because like I said, there's a lot of pent up uh, demand in the migration industry. It's all going to come uh, rushing out of uh, yeah that that pool of demand. Yeah, well, I imagine once the borders open, yes. you'll see a huge influx of people yes. leaving and coming in, yes. more than likely, and your phone will probably never stop ringing. Absolutely, it's going to ring off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> Have you prepared for that? Yes, we are. And that's the reason, uh, yeah, you said, how are you prepared as an entrepreneur? That was a good question. And that's the reason we haven't dropped anybody from our team. Hmm. It was the easiest decision for me as an entrepreneur to say, wow, I'm, I'm, my revenues have dropped down to less than tenth of what they were before and quickly start dropping your team members and stuff like that. But you take years to build this fantastic team. Mm. I have nine licensed immigration advisors on my team and I've paid for their course. I've paid for their licenses. I've paid for you know, their supervision and everything else. So you don't have a knee-jerk reaction to a challenge and immediately start dropping those people saying, oh, this is you know a weight on the company. or the, You need to dig inside and find those resources to hold on to that wonderful team that you've built. Well, some people do, though. They yes. think purely of the numbers. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and that's, I think, the, the difference between an entrepreneur and a visionary. And yes, that is, you know, in, in business, for instance, normally people... Uh, one of the most uh, uh, commonly used terms is, what's your mission statement and what's your vision statement? Okay, there's a vision statement and a mission statement for every company. The mission statement is what you see today, you know, on the table. Mm. And so it is very easy to see this big team of people and start chopping and snipping and dropping them off. But the vision is what you cannot see. It's beyond the horizon. So a true entrepreneur can look beyond the curve of the earth and know there is a ship which is traveling towards you and it's going to arrive over that curve. That's a skill that I think a lot of people need to acquire. Exactly. But they don't. Exactly. Yeah. Foresight, and which is what I said. Foresight, patience and persistence and optimism. Mm. What goes up has to come down. What goes down has to go up. Yeah. You well, need to hardwire that into your brain. Well, you can't be on top forever. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. And in terms of people that migrate here, because I we've discussed this off here before, in terms of people that migrate here, but they find it difficult to adapt to the culture, and not just here in the UK, yeah. America, what do you say to those people? I'd say get out. Stop uh, living in your little ghettos that you create inside your minds. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for you know, for Christ's sake, there was a reason you left India and came to New Zealand or UK or Australia or what have you, and that was not to you know go back and realign with your own community. Sure, there is a factor of uh, comfort there, a safety net. Yes, there is. But you you came to New Zealand to be as much a New Zealander as you know retaining your Indianness or Chineseness or what have you. So mm. I think a, a lot of people do not integrate with the societies they get into because of maybe, I don't know, fear factor, discomfort factor, uh, not sure if they'll be accepted. But you wouldn't know till you try. Loss of identity exactly. maybe as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you wouldn't know till you try. I've, I've happily gone around and I'm, I'm accepted. I even speak Maori for that matter. I was the only Indian bloke at uh, the Wananga when I was doing, I did two courses in Maori. Uh, uh, which was I did a, a level uh, two in uh, 
uh, Teria Maori and I've done a level three in Tikanga Maori. Mm. Okay, I was an Indian, only Indian bloke. So, yeah, I mean, initially, even I felt that apprehension of, oh, how is it going to be as the only non-Maori, non-Pakeha guy in the class? But then I was just accepted. And in doing that, my vision, my understanding of New Zealand is so much more than the average migrant. Mm. Because New Zealand, is, you know, is we have, like I said at the start of our conversation, such a beautiful bicultural platform. We have the Pakeha and the Maori bicultural platform. And now there is a third element of, you know, a bit of migration happening as well. I am one of those few love fortunate migrants who has a fantastic understanding of both the Maori and the Pakeha side of things. Mm-hmm. I've attended Tangis. I've uh, done my no homerize. I've slept there. I can do a, I know the exact way to do a hongi. I know how to, you know, greet and start a conversation and stuff like that. And in that, I found a lot more acceptance into New Zealand at large. Mm. Was it easy for you, though, when you first came here? Or was it something that took you a while to kind of adjust to? No, uh, I think, uh, again, uh, <laughs> Reese, I may not be the typical example of an average migrant uh, uh, because uh, a lot of them, and I think the main reason I say that is because of uh, the English language skill I acquired at a very, very young age. Well, you're very well spoken. Yeah, thank you very much. And this is something that's, that's been with me since my childhood, back growing up back in India. So I, I have been very adaptable to the English-speaking environment. And I think for me, that was a huge asset individually that I could easily break those walls down and, you know, and move on. And I think a lot of it boils down to English where, you know, people are a little apprehensive about moving out into, uh, you know, uh, the larger society. Uh, so for me, it wasn't such a big challenge, to be honest. Uh, and uh, also, I think the other thing that will help a lot is to, again, do a bit of research about the destination you're going to. So before I, when I came into New Zealand, the first couple of months was learning as much as I could about New Zealand so that I could have an average everyday conversation. Mm. You know, I didn't know what the heck rugby was before I came to New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people didn't. From exactly. India. I, 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 I didn't know what fishing was. Yeah, well, that's that's a good point. Yeah, and small things like that. I have this great friend of mine called Paul, who is also f- from Hamilton, you know, and my uh, my former neighbor. Uh, and he and I, you know, initially struggled to, to find that friendship, although we were, you know, friends across the fence. Uh, but, you know, I'd go to his parties, and I was, again, the only uh, non-Kiwi blog there in that whole group of 30, 40 people. So I did struggle initially. I did feel like I asked myself, do I belong here? But I persisted, hung in there, created those conversations. And over a period of time, I just broke down those walls. And today I'm probably the first guy at Paul's party. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's the way it is. And Paul and I, another friend called John, we actually did a month-long road trip in India about a year and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's a valid point you make because, say, with India, for example, it's a very different culture to, say, here. Correct. So it can be very hard adjusting, particularly if you don't, even if you can speak English, but you don't really have similar interests. Exactly. I mean, something as simple as being able to eat with a fork and a knife. It's, yeah, well, you it, guys it, eat with your it's hands. Not, exactly. Yeah. It's not something that's part of our culture. So, so 
there are all those invisible, let's say, so let's say there was a very genuine, honest invitation from your neighbor or colleague saying, hey, look, how about meeting for dinner at this lovely Italian restaurant tonight? Mm. I didn't know how to eat pasta. And there, there'd be a, quite a few Italian restaurants in India, though, Well, there? now, yes. Now with the whole globalization. And, right, you know, right. Those, but, but back when then. When I was growing up. Right, it wasn't, yeah. I was growing up, you know. The first time I ate a burger was some of when some of my cousins who came from the U.S., uh, you know, and we were still living in back in India, and they were like, oh, we're dying for a burger. I didn't know what a burger meant. So it's it's it takes a while to assimilate. But the problem is when you're taking the time to assimilate because you have those inbuilt apprehensions of not being part of the culture, you tend to hold back sometimes a little bit. But that is where the, it becomes counterproductive. I'd say go ahead and make those mistakes. Hmm. It's okay. Nobody's going to castigate you. Nobody's going to nail you to a cross and kill you. Yeah, well, it's true. Bebo, like first podcast in New Zealand for me. Never done this in my life before. Oh. I didn't shy I away like from it. Yeah, well, you're doing really well. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't shy away from it. Yeah. So here I am, sitting and doing my first experience in a podcast with a you know, popular podcast like yourself. And there it is. I've learned it. So second one will get easier and easier and easier. Of course. So I had to break that invisible wall inside my own head. Hmm. Unfortunately, well, a lot of migrants don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, say with India, for example, I know from going there, yeah. uh, the type of food that you eat is very different very from different, here. Yeah. And I find there, so if you go to a restaurant, you know, you've got about 30 options just for the entree, where here it's a bit more consolidated, right? So Indians might come here and they, they find that the menus don't have anything to offer them, particularly if they're a vegetarian or a vegan, because let's face it, Kiwis are very meat-oriented. Meat yeah, yes. very, very meat-oriented. Yes. Uh, so what about um, Indians who find that difficult to accept? You know, because they don't want to go to restaurants because they feel like oh, there's nothing that I can eat. I mean, I think I think that restaurants can be good because it's a good way of yeah. socializing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'd say it was a choice you made. You chose to go to a country. Touche. Okay? Yep. That's my view on it. Yeah. So don't land in New Zealand and then start complaining about the existing culture. Saying there isn't enough vegetarian restaurants here. There isn't, you know, enough whatever, you know, kind of thing. You chose to be here. Yeah, it's very valid. I mean, it's it's brutally truthful, but it's, it but it's valid. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. yeah. You know? So and I'd say learn to adapt and learn to, <clears throat> le learn to get inventive. And if you realize that, oh, okay, there are more people like myself who would eat only vegetarian food, go ahead and start a vegetarian restaurant. Yeah. We need and more that's of them. How you're, exactly. And that's how you become an even more productive migrant to New Zealand. Do you get asked this, by the way, when people migrate? Which is about the vegetarian part of it? Yeah, or food. like uh, They ask, uh, do we get uh, Indian food and stuff? And I, I actually <laughs> smile and say, we probably get more than you do. Because, interesting, it's a fact, because the Indian stores here actually stock much higher quality produce and products because there is a strict border control and anything of substandard will not be allowed into our country. Oh. And there are strict uh, government rules around not having 
out-of-date products on your shelves and da-da-da, all those kinds of things. Plus, an Indian store will not just be Indian. It would have Pakistani rice. It would have Bangladeshi something. It would have Sri Lankan pickles. It will have whatever else, which was just not possible back in India, for instance. So an Indian store here would actually have a much wider, much better, higher quality offering than back in India. I never even thought of that. <laughs> Do people... When they speak to you, they're like, oh, wow, okay, yeah. that's amazing. And, and what I do is, I'm uh, like yourself, I'm a, a, a small broadcaster myself, so we, we run a couple of very good YouTube channels uh, and some uh, Facebook pages uh, for the company. Uh, my own individual YouTube channel has got, I think, about 22,000 followers at the moment. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, well yeah. done. Well done. Yeah, yeah. So, and what I do is, you know, wherever I'm going, I take little snippets of... Uh, whatever I'm doing and take a picture and say, hey, look, you know, you know sometimes you guys ask me uh, if I can find, uh, uh, for instance, a puja item, puja being the, the prayer they do, uh, you know, uh, back in India. And they say, can I get that particular, there's a little bell, the tinkle and stuff like that. Take a picture and say, hey, look, if you ever wonder, can I get everything that I want? Yeah, look, even this is available. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Yeah. Thank you so much, Arun. So if anybody wants to follow AJV or your personal profiles, what's the best way of them doing that? www.ajvglobal.com uh, is the website. Yep. Or just Google it and you, you should hit our Facebook or YouTube or one mm. of those places. Yeah. Because is, is AJV, does it have a YouTube channel or is it just your personal YouTube channel? No, we also have a company YouTube channel. Okay. And so there's, there's one in my name as well. So if someone is obsessed with you they can check they can out both. Here, absolutely <laughs> <laughs> cool cool well hey thank you so much for doing this i very much appreciate it you're a great man someone i greatly admire and um i hope that everyone who's listening to this even if you're not migrating here i'm sure you can get something out of this because he's a he's a great individual oh thank you Risa. you know what it's always a pleasure to share the experiences of your life with uh, other people Mm. Uh, and hopefully provide some sort of uh, pathway to them to, to, yeah, just stand up and do your thing and be happy doing it. And uh, you like yourself, look at this beautiful studio you created here and great inspiration to other people who want to follow in footsteps. And so some of us need to be leaders and not just be followers all the time. I so agree. well done, you as well. Proud of your achievements oh, as well. Thank you. All right. All right. That's a good, <laughs> uh, good way to wrap up. So make sure you share, like, and subscribe. Follow AJV, follow Arun, and uh, yeah, until next time, stay safe. Thank you.